City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, uh, Zach, what are you drinking right now? Well, you know, it's it's 2019. Uh, it's a new year. And so I kind of thought it'd be fun for me in the beginning part of the year to uh, to try out a couple things that I don't normally drink. So, so my resolution uh, for the at least for January in uh, in the world of drinking is to is to give two things a, another chance that I've written off um, in many ways in my life. So the first is Sauvignon Blanc, um, grape I don't really care much for, haven't, but I've been badgered by some friends and colleagues to to give it another try. So uh, so that's on the. It's on the agenda. I had a had a bottle of Sancerre the other night that uh, you know was pretty good, and and I, I may even check out some New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which has always been my uh, I don't know my bugaboo. Um, but I'm going to give that a shot at least. We'll see. Uh, and then uh, and then I'm going to uh, I'm also going to going to give uh, I'm going to give light rum another try. Uh, it's never been a thing for me. Like other than as like you know I mean it's okay in like the right cocktail where you don't really. You know, it's kind of just an almost a neutral spirit, but uh, but I, again, I've had a couple of uh, people I respect tell me that there's some stuff out there that's that's worth trying, um, if not totally on its own, then at least much more, uh, I don't know, naked, I guess, than your standard um, you know mixed cocktail with with light rum in it. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give those a try. I don't know that I'm gonna necessarily change my opinion, but I might, and I will report back. If so, how about you? Okay, okay. Uh, you know, I haven't been drinking a whole lot in the new year. Yeah, um, you were you were you were abroad uh, in a place that's kind of hard to get something to drink, right? Yeah, I was in Morocco, and then you know we recorded the Hangover podcast, and I've been tr- I've been trying to play it a little chill here. <laughs> uh, I don't subscribe to dry, dry January. I think uh, a lot of it is like a bunch of people sort of. T- making a first world problem out of a serious problem. So like, I think, uh, you know, drinking heavily and alcoholism is a massive problem. Uh, and I think that those that sort of subscribe to this idea of like, well, I'm just not going to drink for January because it's fun is really, uh, you know, sort of frivolous. I think if you have a drinking problem, we need to sort of talk about it more openly as a society. There's a lot of uh, overconsumption in our industry. Um, something we need to deal with, which is why I try to practice moderation uh, throughout my 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 year, I try to go, you know, at least three to four days a week where I don't drink. Um, so I'm doing that uh, currently. And then when I have had a, a glass of wine or two, you know, I'm, I've been drinking some some Cabernets from California, which have been really interesting. Um, we're sort of tasting them here. Uh, but I think, you know, me talking about dry January sort of leads us into what we're talking about today on the podcast, which is that, you know, I think a lot of people are doing dry January this month. And uh, they're not only doing dry January, but they're doing clean eating. They're moving away from, uh, you know, going out to eat as much. And, you know, what all that adds up to is it becomes a very, very hard month for the restaurant industry, uh, probably one of the hardest months in the entire year for the restaurant industry. Um, and so that begs the question of how does one actually make a living in the restaurant industry, whether you're an owner or you simply work the floor or you're a manager, beverage director, et cetera, what does a sustainable career look like? And what do, uh, you know, is a middle-class life available to you um, in in a world where I think we sort of as consumers or myself as a consumer, because I've never worked in the restaurant industry, take for granted, right? We think that Oh well, the person who's serving me also probably has a similar lifestyle to me, and I don't really think that's true. So, Zach, you've worked the floor. Uh, you currently work the floor as well. So, obviously, I think you have a really amazing perspective on this. And then, so to gain some more perspective, I brought along uh, our tastings editor Keith Beavers, who um, 
owned a wine bar in the East Village for 10 years. So, you know, I get your perspective as someone who's worked the floor and Keith's perspective as someone who's been an owner of one of these establishments. Um, so first I just wanted to welcome Keith. Keith, what's up? What's going on, guys? Nice to see you in 2019 or at least talk to you, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's, can, does my voice sound different? It's a new year. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with pretty much the same, but uh, you never you never know. I'll, I'll compare the uh, the audio more closely afterwards. Yeah, we'll do a little compare and contrast. Yeah, my audio forensic uh, you know hobby will pay off in a in a few minutes. Uh, too many crime, true crime podcasts, Zach. Gotta... Yeah. Well, you know, gotta gotta have a life outside of drinking. So I thought I'd, I'd kick this conversation off with you guys. Obviously, as I said, I've, I've, I'll, I'll bring the perspective here of someone who eats out, but not someone who's worked. So I just curious for both of you: when you first got into the restaurant industry, was this something that you saw as being a potential lifelong career where you could have, a, you know, a quality life, or was this like, okay, I moved to a city, I need a job, and I and restaurants are it? Well, for me, I definitely had no plan at all. I mean, I, I I grew up around restaurants, um, so to me, to some extent, that that world was familiar. And um, my stepmother owned a restaurant growing up, so I certainly understood that you could make um, a life for yourself in that world. But it wasn't necessarily that I got involved in really working full time in restaurants um, until after college. And there, it was kind of like I didn't know what the fuck else to do. Really, like I I got a I graduated with a degree in journalism, and I didn't want to do that. Although, look at me now. Um, and, uh, and then moved to back to Seattle where I grew up and started working in my stepmom's restaurant and kind of was just like, well, I kind of like this. I like the hours. I like the, you know, the sort of relaxed work environment. I like the readily available cash. And, um, you know, it was a different time in the restaurant industry for sure. It's, it's very different now. Um, and it wasn't until I got a number of years under my belt that I started thinking about, well, you know what exactly am I doing here? Is this is this the the field, the industry where I want to spend my life? And yeah, I think so. Um, it has been to this point, but but it definitely wasn't. You know, one of the crazy things about working um, in the restaurant industry, especially I think in some ways more as a as a front of the house person than as a cook, um, is there isn't really an obvious trajectory. I mean, you can go into management, um, and going into management has its benefits and its literally and its um, and its negatives. You generally make less money but have things like vacation pay and health care, um, although that's changing in the restaurant industry in a lot of places now. Those are things that are being extended to even shift workers. But other than that, there's not a clear career trajectory for most people. And it wasn't until I started really focusing on wine and beverage that I that something like a career trajectory even emerged for me. And even that's been something I've had to largely kind of create on my own. For me, did I the the question was uh, did I is this something that I planned on? Absolutely not. I moved to New York City as a like I had, I my life has been one from one hustle to the next hustle. I've been a hustler for a long time, and I moved to New York City not knowing what the hell to do with my life. And I was actually in the music industry when I got here, and um, I uh, got a job at an Italian restaurant in the East Village, and then that owner opened up a wine bar, and I was getting into wine, so he sent me over there to work, and I managed that place. And then I managed that place for until nobody else was there except for me and new people that I had hired. And then I hired this one kid because I was from Maryland and he was from Maryland. It's the only reason why I hired him on Craigslist. And then at some point, him and I bought the restaurant, opened a wine shop. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 I didn't even know what I was doing. I had no idea what running a restaurant. I mean, I'd run, I had managed the restaurant and run it, but like I had no idea what it meant anything. And I, I, but when I was 
when I was doing it, I absolutely thought that was going to be the rest of my life. I thought I was going to be a restaurant owner for the rest of my life. I thought I was going to have two or three restaurants. I had a wine shop. I had a restaurant. It was New York City. It was great. And then the recession came and everything changed. Um, But now that I am a few years out of it, I can't imagine that I ever thought that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. It just, it doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, I think one of the biggest things that you hear from a lot of people is that one of their big goals, especially people who romanticize restaurants, is that, uh, you know, they want to own one, right? You, you hear all the time people want to open restaurants. They have these, these grand ideas, right? And it's, it's very, it seems really romantic. But, you know, we're sitting here in the slowest month of the year, and I'm really curious for you guys both to talk about what is so actually fucking hard about this business, because I think that's something that a lot of our listeners probably don't really get to to hear a lot. Um, you know, it seems super cool. We get to, you know, if we're in bigger cities, we probably get wine and dine by, uh, you know, wine importers, by purveyors of different meats and cheeses they'd like us to bring into the restaurant, et cetera. But, you know, that's not really all that it's cracked up to be often. You know, it's, it's a business that can really suck. You know, it can be a Monday night where two people come in and that's it. And you have to pay for the staff. I'm looking at Keith's face as I say that because I know <laughs> that's happened to him multiple times, right? It's, it's not an easy business. Um, so maybe, you know, Keith first, like what, what is, what are some of the tough things about the business and, you know, how do you as a, as an owner deal with those things? Well, you know, it's interesting because my only experience is in New York city, which is like, what the fuck was I thinking? But you know, it happens in every demo, you know, every city has a demographic and your restaurant is based off of what people can afford and you decide, and your rent is based off you know, you, you, you have your rent, you have your payroll, you have your expenses, you have every, what a restaurant is, is like this hope that you have income. Like you're sitting just like at home, you sit at home, hope you have enough income to pay the bills that are coming due. That's all a restaurant really is, is one big checkbook. And you hope that you can pay back everything. And when it's all over, you can walk away with a little bit of money that never happens. The thing about running a restaurant is it's a very slim margin and it is takes your entire body. You can't sleep. You wake up thinking you go to sleep thinking about the restaurant. You wake up thinking about the restaurant. When, it's, when the restaurant's doing very well, you, 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 gotta, you actually can't even be excited about that because you know that at some point January is coming. And if January is coming, that means it's going to be slow. That means you have to maybe tell people you have a skeleton crew, but if you can't do that, you have to figure out how you're going to make that money. Then you have to figure out if you're going to be popular enough. How's your neighborhood doing? Can you even get into Eater? Because Eater, unfortunately, defines way too much in this city these days. Eater used to be an awesome local food blog in New York City. And then at some point, something happened. Maybe some big company bought them or something. And it became, you have to have a PR team. If you don't have a PR team, which is at the base $5,000 a month, then you might as well not have a restaurant. If you can't get a liquor license, whether it's in New York City or anywhere, you're not making your margins. Um, it is your, is, are, are you Italian? Are you French? Are you Chinese? Are you fusion? Are you a, a good, like, are you a, a solid idea? Are you an experimental idea? If you're an experimental idea, just go home and pretend you never decided to have a restaurant. But you know, like it, it is, it is one of the most stressful re- thing. But the thing is like, it, we do it like we, it, it for 10 years, it was an absolute, ride. I mean, it was, it was stressful. It was fun. It was crazy. It was hectic. It was heart wrenching. It was, 
And of course, and you're right, Adam, I mean, you get to go to all the best restaurants, you get wined and dined because people want you to buy their wine and you have friends that are chefs and it's, it's a really great life. It's a lot of fun. But in the end, when it comes down to making that money, it's very hard to do. Yeah, I want to I want to say something, which is that the restaurant industry in general is an industry that's long on perks and short on profit. Like, there's a lot of cool things that come along with working in the restaurant industry, you know, whether it's those uh, tasting experiences, being the person who goes out to dinner at a dozen different restaurants in a month and knows half the staff at all of them. Um, those are really fun things, and they're definitely appealing, and that's a lot of what uh, drew me in and kept me in when I was younger yeah. um, is being able to have those experiences. But I would say that, you know, when you transition in your life, as I have from someone who's in their early to mid-20s and wants to be out until, you know, closing time every night and wants to go out to dinner four or five times a week to someone who now is, you know, in their mid thirties and has a kid and a wife and a dog and a life and all those things, mm -hmm. um, you know, like a retirement savings account. Um, it's a very different set of priorities and the, the challenges, I mean, I, I can't speak to the ownership side because uh, I haven't done that and I never will because owning a restaurant is quite possibly one of the it. dumbest things anyone can do. No offense, Keith. Um, but it's, just even working in a variety of capacities throughout the restaurant industry, what what is incredibly hard about it, what does, isn't seen, I think, by um, the public is a lot of what Keith was saying, but even from the server or bartender or sommelier side is how unpredictable everything about your job is. You know, you can... Every day, man. Yeah, unless you work in the absolute highest profile restaurants, you know, there are, I don't know, uh, half of a percent of the restaurants in the country, probably less than that, a, a tenth of a percent, where you can count on being pretty consistently busy almost every night. And everywhere else, it's a right. crapshoot, right? You know, you have your busy month, you have your busy week, you've got the convention, you know, a convention in town, there's a sporting event, a concert, uh, a show, and then there's the nights, you know, whether they're January or it's just the random, you know, Tuesday night in August when when everyone's out of town. You know, there are all these things where you have very little predictability in your in your life. And Absolutely. it's really, really hard. You know, it's also this is a thing that's changed a little bit um, since I've been in the restaurant industry. But it also used to be um, a situation where, you know, I would make cash every night and making cash every night was great, except for when I'd wake up the next day and be like, wow, what happened to the hundred fifty dollars, you know, hundred fifty of the two hundred fifty dollars I made last night? Yeah, like, we went out after work. It, absolutely. Exactly. That's just what you do. And so I mean, the thing is, yeah, absolutely. No, go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's. There's something beautiful about restaurants, you know, there's, there's that beauty of like, you know, if you have a chef and it, when it's when, like, there, there is, I know I just got, I just went full on negative about it, but there is, there is beauty in restaurants. There is something wonderful about watching your customers enjoy their meal, watching your staff, if you're a good boss you know, really love the place that they're working at, watching your chef like give a shit about the ingredients and actually keeping that food cost down to 26%, which they never do. <laughs> but, you know, it's you know, like you said, you know, that one night here that you have to like for us, what we did is Valentine's Day was huge for my restaurant. It was the like I planned, I started planning Valentine's Day months in advance because I knew that the amount of money I make on that one night could actually carry me through some part and then based on what I made after Valentine's Day would actually carry me through January and hopefully somewhere into February. I mean, I mean, through February and hopefully somewhere into April because then that's when everything would pick up again. See, it's so interesting to me, though, to hear you talk about Valentine's Day because from the point of a consumer, hearing your perspective, I fucking get it. But 
when we listen to consumers, they think the restaurant at Valentine's Day is trying to take them for a ride, right? Like how dare they do this price fix menu and ask me for all this money on this day? Like when I just want to go out and be with my significant other and pay what I normally would have paid on a random Monday at this restaurant. And I think like that's the the disconnect that's missing that I don't think we, you know, we as, as consumers understand as much, right? Because now, dude, I get it. And you know what? If people – if you want to go on Valentine's Day, you should pay the price because this restaurant's been starving for your business for a month and a half. And most of you have been in your fucking apartments, you know, <laughs> cooking the blue apron and doing dry January, right? So this is the time when the restaurant industry is picking back up. But I think that's really interesting because we don't understand that as consumers, right? The other thing we don't understand as consumers is, you know, the, the rising prices in order to pay the staff better, right? So a lot of us turn away. I, I know there's a, there's a ton of restaurants in New York City that tried to go no tipping in order to pay everyone a fair wage and have gone back to tipping because, you know, a lot of it was for some of the places, the math didn't work out, right? And you had servers quit because they weren't getting paid as much as they made in tips. But in a lot of places too, I talked to, you know, chefs and restaurant owners and sommeliers who say like, yeah, a lot of consumers just stopped coming. They started seeing the, the prices and were like, well, you know, I get to I get to choose my tip. Right now, you're choosing the tip for me. I think it's super interesting. Zach, is that happening in Seattle? Yeah, you know, so the, the restaurant company I work for implemented a service charge in all of our uh, full-service restaurants. And uh, this was probably – this was over uh, – this was, I guess, I can't remember if it's been two or three years now. It's So it's been a little while. And we definitely – there was a lot of pushback initially, um, and it was a challenge for us to explain to guests and things like that. At this point, it's, it's pretty uh, – you know, people are mostly familiar with it, and um, it's become more and more – uh, commonplace in uh, throughout the city. So I think, you know, the 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 thing I was going to say, you know, you're talking about the pricing on Valentine's Day. I think there's just a huge disconnect between the dining public and the restaurant industry on pricing in general. And it's only been exacerbated by a lot of, I think, well-meaning, but occasionally very ham-handed attempts to um, provide more amenities, more uh, benefits for restaurant employees and, 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 you know, sort of hourly shift workers in general. So, you know, the, the things I would say are, one, you know, there's a lot of people who these days, and I hear this from friends, from guests sometimes, who say, you know, essentially, oh, well, why is this bottle of wine, cocktail item on the menu priced this much when I can go buy this bottle of wine at my wine shop for X amount? And this may have been a complaint for people forever. I don't know. Um, but it's I hear it a lot more now than I used to. And I think, you know, part of it is that, you know, people have more access to that information than they used to. And, and when people say, oh, it's this much at the wine shop, what they're really doing is like opening up Wine Searcher on their phone and looking at every wine on my list and looking at like, what is the score and, you know, how much does it, how much can I get it for if I get it shipped from some like, you know, gray market site, um, you know, or gray market shop or whatever, and who knows where. And, you know, that's not exactly a fair comparison to what uh, a restaurant has to go through to, to put something in front of you. Um, it just mm -hmm. takes a lot more labor. You know, we have to have um, – there's there's a lot of people who touch that bottle of wine, that, um, you know, plate of pasta, that steak, whatever it is that you're ordering, and all of them have to be paid. And now all of them have to be in Seattle specifically, have to be given um, sick pay. They have to be given um, family medical leave. They have to be given um, – at least $16 an hour. They have to be provided for um, in a whole host of ways that are re really, really new to the restaurant industry. I mean, when, you know, you guys in New York, uh, my really brief time in the New York in, uh, restaurant industry, you made 
you know, like $2 an hour plus tips. So, you know, the restaurant itself is only spending a tiny amount of money to have a, a, a person there, uh, an employee there in the front of the house, and then the guest is making up all the difference. And obviously, there's no benefits, there's no, there's none of that. And now, in most cities, you know, most major, certainly fairly progressive cities, there's a high minimum wage that has to be paid regardless of whether employees receive tips, commissions, something like that. And there's a whole slew of other benefits, which are at least partially employer funded. And again, I'm not saying these things are negatives, but I am saying that if you're the kind of person who supports those things and voted for those things in your city or in your state or whatever, you have to understand that that money doesn't just appear magically. Like there are certainly shitty restaurateurs out there who have taken advantage of their of their employees for a long time. Um, I may have worked for one of those in the past, but there are <laughs> there are also it's it's impossible now for um for places to hold costs where they are it's also every element of the industry has gotten more expensive food is more expensive beverage is way more expensive than it used to be labor is obviously more expensive rent has gone through the roof in seattle it's obviously crazy high in new york and in many other cities and there's just you know the as keith said the margins have always been thin in the restaurant industry i mean so thin that if you compare it to almost any other industry it's it's kind of comical that anyone thinks that owning a restaurant would be anything other than a way to light money on fire but it is it has only gotten slimmer and slimmer and and you can only be so busy you can only sell so much and the last thing I'll say, and I know this has been a rant and I apologize, but it comes back to something that Keith said, which is, you know, we also live in a in a restaurant landscape now where there's so much focus on novelty and so much focus on what I guess what I would say is um, uh, not a sustainable business model. You know, you're seeing, you're starting to almost see this kind of like, yeah. these people kind of come up with restaurant concepts that I almost imagine they like their intention is only to be open for a year and a half or two years. Like they intend yeah. to hit big, make money and then get out. And and it used to be that people generally didn't open restaurants with the expectation that they'd be closing them in two years. But now it's like you see people who have like a quasi successful restaurant and they pull the plug. And I can't tell whether that's maybe actually good business and on to the next thing or you you know you remodel a little bit, you change the concept and suddenly you're a new restaurant. But it but it does seem it doesn't seem like a thing that's going to uh, stand the test of time in 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 most markets. Yeah, I mean, but dude, I think this is like this goes back to what my rant. What was it, two or three episodes ago, where I went off about uh, the the Christmas theme pop up bars? Yeah, but I mean, that entire thing is what's been happening in the industry, and I think a lot of this is the fault of a, a few certain uh, publications uh, that will not be named. Um, but that you know, I think demand the new new and especially in these big cities right and so i think what we're seeing across the board which is really fucking sad and you know keith is a really amazing example of this is the death of the neighborhood restaurant in vino was the reason i am friends with keith and the reason you know keith was was a, a huge mentor of mine and you know is because he was my neighborhood restaurant that's how i first met him and you know we were loyal to the neighborhood restaurant but unfortunately a lot a lot of people weren't i think a lot of people have turned away from that idea of the neighborhood restaurant and have turned instead to you know trying to collect it's the same with 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 drinking right trying to collect the new new i mean we're seeing it you know craft beer right now uh the really famous flagship beers of a lot of breweries are failing and breweries are killing their flagship beers because consumers are on untapped and all they want to do is drink the newest beer possible. And that's happening in the restaurant world. So you don't want to eat somewhere twice anymore. You want to eat there once, say you were there, check it off the box, put it on Instagram. Again, fuck, it's always for the gram. <laughs> like that's what you want to do. And it's really, it's a problem. And, you know, if we, if we let some of these other great restaurants die, we're 
we're we're just not going to have those great places anymore where the server knows who we are and we feel and we feel taken care of because when, when all we do is want the coolest, trendiest restaurant available, then the only people that get taken care of are the people with the big bucks or people who are in the industry. And that's about it, right? It, you don't get to be a normal consumer and get taken care of because unless you're a regular somewhere at a place you can afford to be a regular, it doesn't happen. Well, this is what I see happening. The thing is, like, cause in, in like, like you were saying, Zach – you were just all this. You just put a list of all these things that restaurants have to do. It's a, it really is a hot mess. But we have to make sure that the customer never knows there's a hot mess going on behind the scenes, and that's a major struggle and challenge as well for a restaurant. But going back to what what, what Adam says, I have a, I have an idea, and it came. I, I don't know where it popped into my brain recently in the past seventy two hours. I don't know what I was experiencing, but. I don't know what's going on. I know it's going on in New York and I have a feeling that if it's going on in New York, there are in other cities it's happening where we are, we went from, you know, uh, large elaborate dining rooms in New York and then post nine 11, we all kind of went more to like more comfortable experiences. We wanted more closed walls, smaller spaces. And then the, the organic movement came and then all this started happening. And then we made a, you know, a restaurant out of one tree and all that shit. And then, you know, now we're, we're then we then we then then you know Instagram social media came around and now it's like the it moment and things that are happening, and these restaurants can't survive. Like you said, I want, I, I was being generous in my head. I was saying five years, but you're right that one or two years. Because and what's the even what's even the point of having a restaurant for one or two years? Like what what, it, what why do you want to do that? Like it's it's pop up land now. But I have a feeling. For example, there's a restaurant in the East Village. Well, it started out in the West Village called Westville. This restaurant has been around for what twenty years, thirty years. At it least, is, at least, it is the most solid, the most. It's a farm-to-table restaurant. Before farm-to-table was farm-to-table, they have seasonal dishes. They have a regular menu. They've been doing the same fucking thing for thirty years, and they are doing great. They have five, six, seven, ten locations now. They're all over the place, but they haven't gone beyond their um, their reaches. They stay within their lines, and they are happy doing what they do. I have a feeling that now, since when this fast cash movement is finally over, I was always wondering what's going to happen after fast cash. Cause I, I was just in DC for a year and it's blowing the fuck up. There are so many restaurants opening up. Like you wouldn't even believe. And the, and but the fast casual thing is happening here in New York because everyone was kind of like, you know, everyone wants to save money and stuff. I wonder if we're going to actually do you th- this is like a pipe dream of mine, but it, what if we're actually going back to simplicity? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if we lose the gram spots like, hey, we're going to one spot in Grammy and going to the next. What if we're gramming and like, hey, I'm back at this place called Westville that I love so much, but it's not Westville, it's something new. It would be really great if this restaurant industry can kind of figure this, get get rid of this whole sort of like, you know, of the moment situation. Because restaurants that were media darlings in New York are closed now, like Pearl and Ash, Rebel, uh, Fung Two. These before I left for DC, everyone was talking about these places. And when I got back to New York from DC, they're gone. So maybe we, it would be, it might be cool if we're going back to that. The only problem I see with that is in DC, for example, initiative 77 was implemented last year, which brings that whole sort of, you know, every restaurant tips, no, no more tips in any restaurant. Of course, DC is the wild, wild West and no one's actually adhering to the law and that's fine. But that means like there was actually this story in DC where bartenders were leaving restaurants left and right, because now these bartenders have worked so hard and they get more money than anybody else. And now they're getting paid the same as a fucking stu- server. And they're like, no, 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 no. 
So it's, I think we're in a transition moment where it's, it's the interesting, the, the restaurant world is kind of like waiting to see what's next. Do you, do you feel that out in Seattle? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's, there's two things that you said that, that, um, I res- that resonated with me. One is actually something you said previously, which is, and I think this is a, a big looming thing for the industry, which is, you know, I'm not an, an economist. I have no idea, but you know, you read more and more of the stories and, and it feels like at a minimum, we're probably going to be in a period of time, in a period of the next year or two where the economy in this country is less strong than it has been if it's not yeah. an outright recession. And, you know, you talked about the right. effect of the, of the last recession on your business. Right. And I think what we're going to find is the tide is going to go out one way or another. Not, don't mm-hmm. sure, not sure how far, don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And there's just, it's going to leave behind a lot of dead restaurants and other businesses too, of yeah. course. And we are, you know, we have this, there's a cycle, you know, it's a, it's a common economic cycle and we're probably reaching the end of it. And a lot of these places that rely on, you know, sort of trans, you know, they don't have loyal, you know, loyal guests of any sort. They have people who come in once, take a picture, post it and move on. Mm. You know, I, I think there, there's going to be a lot of those restaurants that cease to exist. This is what happened 10 years ago, although it wasn't, you know, social media that was driving it, it was maybe just still kind of a little bit of online press. And then, you know, your sort of standard mm-hmm. media buzz, but it was, you know, 10 years ago, there was still a lot of, of interest in new restaurants. We were in, you know, the height of celebrity chef culture in the mid 2000s. Um, and people were, were being, you know, driven towards restaurants that were opened by someone who was, you know, relatively well known right. or established Food network. Yeah, that too. And so I think, you know, I think we're, we're going to see that. And I think, you know, I do think there's also, I can't say this for sure, but I think as, you know, our general generation moves from our 20s and and early 30s into mid to late 30s and 40s you're going to see people with just a different set of priorities you know the uh, the millennials or or however you want to define them are moving from like i said that age range to a little bit older family settled probably making more money but also you know less interested in some of the sort of trappings of of that lifestyle that's lived online i think i hope um and yeah and i think that'll change dining habits i i think but again it's really hard to know you know if i knew the answer to this i wouldn't be wasting my time talking to you guys i'd be trying to make some money somewhere Um, (laughs) right well this is the thing like we we it's like everybody gets to be whoever they want in the restaurant like i'm gonna say how am i saying this consumers get to be consumers they get to get they get to be they get to drink the Kool-Aid of Instagram. They get to be b- drawn into that shit. They, they, it's, it's part of life. You, they get, so what we do have to do is restaurant tours. We actually have to give a shit about them. And so it, that's one of the challenges of having a restaurant is you can say, no, fuck that Instagram shit. No, no, no. I mean, like I railed against Yelp is my enemy. Yelp has been my enemy for since the inception of Yelp. I've hated Yelp. It's and I still to this day use yeah. Yelp. Damn it. It's a, <laughs> but you know, you have, you, it's going to be interesting to see because restaurants, no matter what, if you want to have a restaurant, you can't tell the, unless you're Wiley do friends or somebody who has the power to say, no, this is what you do in my restaurant. You have to give in to the sways of trends and that they happen so fast these days. It's very hard to see how restaurants are going to sit within that trend. That's why I was thinking like that Westville model, like, Maybe we go back to simplicity. Well, I don't know if we go back to simplicity or if we go back to the trend of the Westville model, which is certain restaurants like Westville basically building these mini chains, right? Because that's because then you know the the chains can support when one restaurant's not performing and one is, they can sort of all pay for themselves, which is 
a bummer to think of, but I think like, you know, less and less are you going to find or the really the crazy restaurants, at least in the big cities, I feel like that is just the one restaurateur trying to do what they want because they love it. I think those people are moving to the Hudson Valley. I think those people are moving to places like Atlanta, to Nashville, Portland, you know, Charleston, places that are more affordable for them to do that, where you can have a restaurant and and basically you know, have a, a pretty, at least a, a decently comfortable life. I think in the biggest cities, it's becoming harder and harder. I think, you know, that's why you're seeing either big money come in. So it's, it's got to be like, a, you know, a hedge fund person who wants to blow a ton of cash and therefore they're willing to pay the money and ride it out. You're, or you're going to have to have a hotelier who needs to have a restaurant, right? So you see all these all these great restaurants are now going into hotels in New York City because the hotels are willing to absorb the the losses for at least, in a lot of cases, three to five years for some of these restaurants in order to have these banner, you know, names of chefs or sommeliers, et cetera, come in and be their anchors to help, you know, become an amenity to guests as they're competing for people staying in their spaces. You know, so that's that I think is what's happening. Um, which is kind of a bummer because then what's happening is in my neighborhood in the East Village where we have a regulation against hotels, we're losing our restaurants. You know, we're, we don't have as many great restaurants as we used to. But instead, you know, you know where the great restaurants are? The great restaurants that are opening right now are opening in the financial district, which is crazy. You have a ton of, you know, I just heard there's a, there's a new restaurant that's going to open soon that's stolen away one of the best, re- you know, one of the best chefs in France and is going to go for four stars because they've been lured by a real estate developer. Right. So like that's where the restaurants are going, which is, you know, good for New York. There's still great restaurants. New York's one of the best restaurant cities in the country. But some of our neighborhoods are losing the great restaurants, too, that are just, you know, neighborhoods that are great to live in. And what we're replacing them with is these chains like Westville, where like, yes, I get it. It's, it's really a solid place, but it's 10 locations because I think that's the future for them. And the, I think the reason the fast casual is so popular and probably will never go away is fast casual is actually where you make all your money. You know, it's so, it's so easy. You don't need the staff and it is where you can franchise that shit quickly. And, you know, everyone's got the Danny Meyer syndrome right now. They see that he, he IPO'd and, you know, is, is worth, he's a hundred, hundred times millionaire at this point, right? Like almost close. So you look at that and dude now can do whatever he wants for the rest of his life. Now his restaurants are just fun. Now it's play money. Yeah. Right. Because. Well, and I was going to say. Really so, quick, Adam. Sorry, I just want, I want no to go. think to co- to come back to the to the question because you it prompted a thought in me about you know this idea of how do you make a living in the restaurant industry, and I think there's the the answer actually oddly in my mind is sort of similar to uh, is is for similar for both people who work as um, you know front or back of the house staff and also people who maybe own restaurants, and it is you have to diversify. I think. You can't, unfortunately, as a as you were saying, in most major cities, as a restaurateur, open one restaurant with one concept and expect that to be anything other than a time and money sink. You might be the incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky person who who makes one restaurant work, but they, those are few and far between. So whether that's a fast casual concept, whether that's you know figuring out how you can brand yourself in some other way, um, you know whether it's partnering with yeah a hotel chain an airline, uh, you know, doing a, a line of prepared food. I mean, you've seen all, you know, chefs do this for a while and, and celebrity chefs realized this a decade ago or more that they were never going to be able to make a lot of money just cooking food for people or even, you know, supervising people cooking food. They, you got to get your name out there and you've got to, you've got to brand it. And as a, as a server or as a bartender or as a sommelier, you may not obviously be able to brand yourself in that same way, but the, the solution has to be, I think that you, 
create a, a skill set for yourself that is more indispensable than, you know, you don't want to be the kind of person who can be replaced with a counter. And it's hard. I mean, you've got to work at it. You've got to learn. You've got to, right. you've got to, you've got to study, you know, you've got to, whether it's wine, spirits, food, you know, you've got, but there, there, there's just, there is, a, there's going to be a tremendous pressure on most restaurants to cut staff because labor has become an incredibly expensive um, part of opening a restaurant. It's always been a huge cost for restaurateurs, but in most cities now, it's far and away the, their biggest cost. And restaurateurs and companies all over are looking at ways to cut labor costs because it's the only way for them to get back in the black. And, you know, you don't want to be the person who's 37, has never done anything but ser- but weigh tables and is suddenly, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you're expendable. Yeah, I think it's I think anybody that I mean, you know, and people move to New York City to define themselves. And when they work as servers in restaurants, it's more often than not a temporary thing until they make their big move. And like when I was in DC for a year, it's a little bit different. People moved to DC to work in the government and realized the government government doesn't pay shit, so they end up working in restaurants to make a little bit of an extra side hustle buck. Then they realize how much they love wine, then they get into the W set and everything gets weird. But like actually in DC, they have a, they're having something called a, 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 a staffing crisis. They don't have enough people for the restaurants, and the restaurant actually the restaurants are opening up faster than they can actually staff the restaurants, which is really really fucking crazy. But um, the the only way to survive, I mean, I, I mean that's the thing. Like when you survive as a server, if if you are a server for life, if that's your if that's your thing, like like for you, Zach, you're a som. Soms, you know, you have the ability to move on to another restaurant. You can move to Vegas tomorrow and probably be a som in some steakhouse for the rest of your life. You know, no, thank you, um, but yes, you're right. I probably could. But you know, like some servers, like I, we go to Peter Luger's here in Brooklyn. This place, these guys, Peter Luger's are in their 60s and they're serving us. They don't even talk to you. They're like, here's your, here's your steak. Go fuck yourself. But, you know, they've been doing it for years. They know Peter Luger's will never close. And that's the thing is like if you want to be a server for life, you got to go to a place that you know is never going to go to close. And that's kind of like some European shit doesn't really happen in New York. I mean, in, in the United States as much as they do. So as far as restaurant owners and people like 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 what i did there's no there is no other way i mean and the thing is branding yourself as a restaurant owner is only as good as the people that will listen to you brand it if no one's listening to you you might as well be shouting at a brick wall and in a place like new york city with the competition so high the the things you have to do like if i would have just gotten butt-ass naked and walked into my restaurant on a busy night I would have gotten press and maybe I'd be famous right now. Like that's how much it takes. Sometimes there was a restaurant in the East village. This lady came in topless because it's legal in New York city to be topless male or female. And for about a week, this restaurant was packed just because some lady was taken. Eater reported on this. It was on Avenue C and it was called candlelight something. And this lady went in just with no shirt on it was in the, it was in July and he asked her to leave. Someone took a picture It went on eater. And for a week that restaurant was making buku. And then all of a sudden it dropped off and now it's closed. You know? So it's like, it, it doesn't, you don't know what it takes. And like, if you honestly, like if you're, if you're, if you've been on diners dives and two gives a shit, Guy Fieri show, like my parents go to every single, when they travel, they go to every, if they're no matter where they are in the country, they go on to the diver and dive with a triple D site and they, they see where Guy Fieri was full throttle in Idaho. You know, so like you can get a little bit of press, but if it doesn't, if it's a fart in the wind, it's never going to be sustainable. So that's why that whole like Westville idea or like keeping it simple 
I don't know, but it's it's hard to brand yourself when you when no one's listening to you, depending on the demographic and the competition around you. I think, yeah. I mean, look, I think the moral of all this conversation uh, for for everyone listening, besides the fact that restaurants are super hard, is that you really have to support your local restaurants. Mm-hmm. It's 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 essential, right? Like I think, and we have to we have to realize that going out is a privilege, right? So like that is why the wine is more expensive. That is why the dish is more expensive because you're asking for someone to serve you and do the dishes and do all the cooking. And if that's what you want, awesome. And you want and you want a better ambiance than your living room couch with your your dining room with maybe your coffee table that's cluttered with a ton of you know mail and other shit on it and a you know a dirty sink. You want like a nice tablecloth or a clean chair and someone to serve you a dish that you don't normally make or you would never make. If you want all that stuff, right, then expect to pay more for it. And if you you know if you're going to start bitching and complaining, then don't go out to eat. But then don't complain when those places close and don't say, oh, I don't understand why these places closed because they closed because you didn't do it. The other part of it is, you know, you, you, as you said, Adam, at the beginning of that, you know, you, you as a diner have to decide kind of who do you want to be, right? If if you want to be the person who checks off, uh, checks a box next, next to every you know, restaurant on the Eater 38 or, or any of those things, you know, that's fine. You know, we, restaurants are, are, should be, should exist to serve a wide range of customers, but I don't necessarily think that most people will find that experience all that fulfilling in the long run. You know, no one on your social media stream is going to actually give a shit that you've done that in the long run. They're going to forget about it an hour later. And you're going to be much happier as a diner, I think, in the most part, for the most part, if you just say, hey, look, you know, whether it's I don't want to get in the car, you know, if you don't maybe live in New York or I don't want to get in an Uber or on the subway or whatever and go to every corner of the city to try all these restaurants. I want to, you know, I want to explore what's around me. I want to be able to feel like, yeah, I have some connection to a thing. You know, we the, the restaurants, the reason that restaurants exist in the first place was because for one, people obviously didn't always have the the wherewithal of the time to cook for themselves, but also because they created a, a sense of community. You know, there was a sense of 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 a shared eating experience and you know the the dining experience the the experience of going out whether it's with you know friends family uh colleagues whatever is one that you know it's it's a primal thing you know sharing food with people sharing drink with people is is a a very powerful thing and and for those of us who don't only want to do that in our house or someone else's house you know that's why that's why restaurants are there and if you don't dine in a way that supports them you know they won't be there and that would suck because yeah. I don't know what I would do for a living. But, um, you know, there are probably better <laughs> reasons to, to go out to eat uh, than just that. I mean, there's a reason why the Olive Garden says when you hear your family, you know, or eating good in the neighborhood or like, you know, it's it's restaurants were at one point and are still some places in the country, a lot of places in the country, actually, that are not urban. They, there is a loyalty. And I, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's an age thing. I don't, I, you know, I don't know like, cause like when I was in my twenties and thirties in the New York restaurant scene, or maybe it's cause I had a restaurant too. I, I, I wanted to try all the new, new, I wanted all the new shit. I want, I didn't, inst- there was no, even before Instagram, I was just wanted to go and, and be and experience everything, especially living in New York when you have so much on offer. But um, maybe it's cause I'm getting older, but I really enjoy going to the same place a few times and really kind of getting to know the place. And I think there was a, there was a time in the United States when we did that a lot. And I think that's changing because of social media and because of the food network and you know, fuck, it's not as relevant as it used to be but like you know i i like that idea i think what adam has said is what you guys are saying is right like there's something beautiful inherently about a restaurant you go out somewhere to have someone take care of you for a minute 
and give you something special that you don't want to cook or you don't know how to cook. And that, that, that's a special, that's a special moment. And then it gets really convoluted with the whole like tipping system and being up and down and weird and all like that. But like, that, that's what it comes down to. And, and that's why we do restaurants. That's why we want to be, because there is something going to be a restaurant owner. There is nothing, I can't tell you, man, there is nothing better than standing in the middle of your restaurant on a busy night, the sound, the din of everyone just like talking and laughing and taking photos and selfies and hearing your staff just like shoot the shit and like going into the kitchen and hearing the clanking of everything. And even if a glass breaks, whatever, it's, you get immune to that. And it's just like, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And that's why we do restaurants. We love bringing people into that spot to give people something special. And hopefully, you know, I don't know. It just, I hope that people take away, take that away as well. Cause I mean, this, this, this podcast, this episode, there's a lot of negative stuff about restaurants and positive, but really in the end, it is a beautiful thing inherent. Yeah. It's addictive really is what it is. I mean, I completely agree. I think, look, the other day, part of the, the, the reason to close this, this conversation, right. Part of the reason Vine Pair exists. One of the main reasons is because I started going to a restaurant that Keith owned and then I made a lifelong friend who taught me a ton about wine. Right. And then, all of this other stuff is the result. And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't keep going to the same restaurant, right? If I didn't keep, you know, becoming friends with you. And I think that that's something that, you know, we have to remember and that's what makes restaurants so special. So in this month in which it is very slow for restaurants, please support them, support your local restaurants, make sure that you take care of that staff. I know that you had an amazing time during the holidays uh, and probably, you know, thought of them then, but think of them more now. Uh, and, and at times when restaurants are, you think, overcharging you because it's Valentine's Day or they're throwing a Cinco de Mayo party or it's some special because it's the Super Bowl, please understand they're doing that in order to take care of their staff, that that's the reason that the prices are higher and that you're paying a premium because you'd like to go out on a night that's busier and therefore they, they need to be able to charge you. It's, we are a, you know, this is capitalism and it's supply and demand. We're not a socialist country in which the restaurants are subsidized by the government. We need to take care of them and then they take care of us. So with that in closing, guys, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, really interesting conversation. And uh, Zach, I will talk to you again next week. Everyone, thank you for listening. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.